0: I know everybody said thank you, but I'll say thank you again for being here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. There's a few familiar. I was waving obnoxiously to somebody I hadn't seen for months. So if I have not met you, I would love to meet you afterwards. And uh, we get to spend the next hour together. It was such a sweet presence of Jesus. There's something nothing to me can ever beat, no matter what room I'm in. If there's thousands of people and worship is going if it's a few people like at a like you know a small group or just on a sunday morning just when the presence of god and you just kind of sit in it there's nothing better than that so i just want to hold that posture if that's okay as we continue on this morning so Um, I don't know about you, but one of my earliest memories, I'm going to start today by sharing you one of my earliest memories of church. I grew up in northern Minnesota, so in the Northwoods, about five hours north of here, and to get to almost any church that wasn't in like downtown, which I grew up in a town of 1,200 people, and there was only one stoplight in the whole county. I want you to all let that soak in, for those of you who had no concept of what I just talked about. But there was a program called Awanas. How many of you have heard about Awanas? It's still going on today? Yeah, it was great. And uh, what Awanas is, it's a memory verse um, and like discipleship program. And I think there's a slide. Do you guys remember the vests? So we had these vests and there were different age groups. And when you would, you would memorize verses. And for attendance, I actually kind of can't remember. And then you get badges. So my friends and I, when I was probably five years old, would drive, we wouldn't drive, somebody would drive us 20 minutes to this church in the middle of the woods. Um, I actually don't even know to this day the name of the church. I just knew it as the Cubby Church and then the Sparky Church because that was what we called our Awanas groups. But I do remember Grandma B. And Grandma B was my friend Spencer's grandma. And so they would take turns driving us. And she was my favorite driver because uh, she had this huge old 80s Chevy station wagon. And when the seat belts ran out in the back seat, we just pile over and actually sit in the actual back where the storage was. It was the 80s, okay, people. Right? So, and uh, and we would get to drive 25 minutes there. And I don't remember, like I said, the church's name, but I remember the volunteers that poured their heart into me. And I remember we get to play games. There would be red Kool-Aid and cookies, and my mom never let me have Kool-Aid unless I was there. So I was literally drinking the red Kool-Aid like at church, (laughs) like getting sugared up while I was doing this. And it was just one of my great memories. You can take the Ioannas off now if you want and just put up the title. it be distracting. Um, but one of the first verses I memorized was John three sixteen, And I have distinct memories of practicing it while my mom was washing dishes. We had a kitchen at the time with white linoleum and this like brown floral wallpaper. And so I have distinct memory of Memorizing these John 316 words while I was twirling um, you know in the kitchen I was five doing it. And I remember it was my first verse, and I really wanted the badge. And so that next Wednesday, I ran out of the station wagon, ran to find my leader, and I just looked at her and she said, "Hi, Jesse," and I just said, "Here's John 316." and I just blurted out the words. And I got it right. And I remember she looked at me. I distinctly remember it was this little upstairs, um, like, sanctuary. And she said, good job, Jesse. Like, you did it. Now you know you not only memorize the words of John 3.16, but now you have an understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And I remember kind of in my five-year-old mind thinking, really? That's all it took? Like, memorizing one verse and, and I understand the gospel? And while I knew the words, and I say that not to... to like, uh, say anything negative about her, I would say my five-year-old self was on to something, right? I had memorized words, but I actually didn't understand the implications. I didn't understand fully at that point what the gospel of Jesus was. And while memorizing scripture is good, we need it. I'm preaching from this passage today, right? Understanding the gospel of Jesus, the simple gospel that I'm going to talk about, is a lifelong journey that you and I are on as disciples. Or as Leo and I were talking about this week, apprentices of Jesus, right? We're watching and then we're doing what he does, and we're being who he says he is as we try to imitate him. So, like I said, you can see it on the slides. We are starting a new sermon series this week that's gonna lead us through Easter called The Simple Gospel. My sermon today is titled The Good News. Now, the gospel actually means the word gospel actually means good news. So another way to think about this is we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, the simple good news. And I say this at times, and I agreed on this sermon series, that I have a hard time with the word simple sometimes when we're entering into the Bible and exploring Jesus. Because at times it can seem simple, but actually once you start to get into it, doing what Jesus said to do and living the way Jesus said to do doesn't always seem that simple. And sometimes the gospel of the good news that Jesus talks about doesn't exactly fit into the paradigm of what we would call the good news today, what the culture would call the good news today, right? And it can seem we're at odd ends, and it's far from simple. So here's how I want to set the stage for Easter, okay? The teacher in me is like setting expectation, okay, for this sermon series and the the different uh, uh, people who are going to be talking to you over the next few weeks We're not simply saying Jesus is simple. We're not even saying the messages he said are simple. What our hope and what our goal is is to focus on the essentials of the good news, okay? The who, what, where, when, how, and do you remember that in school and sometimes why? Okay, people did remember that. Okay, I couldn't tell if that was my up north upbringing or if that was something they carried on. And remember the gospel truth, the good news, that Jesus was sent to this earth, he died on the cross for our sins, so we could live him with him forever because he loved us so much. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. So today, I'd actually actually going to be starting at the very beginning. Because the truth is that the work that Jesus did on the cross, right? The good news of the gospel can actually be traced back to the very beginning in a perfect place, in a garden named Eden. Okay? That God created out of love and a desire to be in relationship with us. And something happened in that garden, and we're gonna be watching a movie on it um, in just a minute, that changed the course Of the world, and it still affects you and I today in ways we don't even realize all the time. So, to set this stage, we're actually going to look at a Bible project video. If you've been around here some time, you've probably seen some Bible project videos. Um, We're going to look at one called the Messiah. And what it is, is it's the overarching journey of God's promise of sending the Messiah from the Garden of Eden to Easter today and beyond. So we're going to talk, we're going to watch this. It's about four or five minutes long. Then we're going to talk about why this is good news for us today and how this applies to the gospel. Okay? All right, let's play.
1: There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden.
2: And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be. Except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God.
1: And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit.
2: And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world.
1: Now... Why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's
2: very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today.
1: But there is some hope, because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve.
2: That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy is going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However... During this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel.
1: So it's like a mutual destruction.
2: Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome.
1: The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David, and he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher.
2: But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give into the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods.
1: Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground, and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out.
2: And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise.
1: So it seems like the whole plan is lost.
2: But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and then it kills him but then all of a sudden he comes back and isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people but the old testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up and this is why when the new testament begins it introduces us to jesus of nazareth Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David... Judah and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact,
1: the promised king.
2: But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself
1: the fatal snake bite wound. Exactly.
2: And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead.
1: And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself.
2: And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
0: <coughs> all right. Isn't that great? Yes. And if you, th- that is actually the Bible Project. I'm just going to plug this. It's a free resource online. If you ever wanted to go watch that again or other videos, they're all available online. There's also, for those of you who love to study, there's actually resources that you can go into the Word and study a lot of the videos, and there's a podcast. So um, I want to, like, sit and discuss that, but I'm going to unpack it instead, so the teacher and me is having a hard time. But here's why I showed this. I think it's really helpful in the ark when we look at Easter and the story of Jesus See, at times we can actually just like pick out a verse, but it's, it's, it's so much better. I think it's so much greater. It's so much richer when we can understand them in the context of God's plan and in the context of God's um, work. See, Easter, which we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, which we already know the ending of, right? Jesus dies on the cross and comes back to life again three days later, is a culmination of God's plan from the beginning of time to reconcile each of us out of love. And see, the need for a Messiah, remember, we're talking about the gospel, the good news. The need for a Messiah, Messiah and Savior is good news because the good news of the gospel is that while we live in a world full of pain and suffering and sin and evil, God provided Jesus as a way to reconcile us to each of him or to him out of love. So now that I've said a lot of context, we're going to jump in to the gospel is good news for us today using the text John three sixteen through 17, Okay. All right, here we go. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that whatever you are doing in people's hearts, my words would not get in the way, but that your spirit would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to set a little bit more context. John three sixteen and 17 actually comes in the middle of a conversation with Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Okay, now Nicodemus is an actual, a Jewish man, and he's a Pharisee, so he's a leader in the synagogue, and the Pharisees were a religious sect at the time that really believed in understanding the law, right, that was what they thought, they said, if we can keep this law, if we can keep going with that way, we will be good, okay, But Nicodemus is living in Jerusalem, and he has seen Jesus walking around and and healing people. He has been probably and heard Jesus preaching about these good news. And Jesus is saying something strange that Nicodemus could not even realize in his brain, in just the context he is. Jesus is saying, no, 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 this God that I am a son of is not just for the Jews, but I have come so that everybody, no matter what background they have, can come and know me. So the Bible actually says that Nicodemus is so curious, he goes to sit with Jesus at night so nobody will see him. So picture Jesus and this man, Nicodemus, sitting together. Nicodemus is trying to wrap his head around all these things that he has been taught probably from a child, right? Growing up as a a Pharisee and and a Jewish man and understanding who this Jesus is and this guy proclaiming he's the son of God. And so, so Nicodemus is asking him questions like, I get that you're a good teacher, Jesus, but but are you more? You're saying you're more, and I don't understand. And Jesus, in the first part of John chapter 3, starts talking about being born again. Now, a very churchy word even to us today, right, born again. But to Nicodemus, that like there was no even concept of what that means, right, in his, in his mind as a Jewish man and as a Pharisee. And so he says, like, Jesus, I don't understand this. What do you mean by being born again? And I'm going to read. I think it'll be up on there. Jesus answers Nicodemus. And I'm going to use the message translation because I think it's just beautiful. This is how Jesus answers Nicodemus in his response to what being born again means. And Jesus says, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water's creation, the invisible moving the visible a baptism into new life it's not possible to enter god's kingdom see jesus is telling nicodemus that being born again think back to that movie is god's way of calling us back to our original design a submission to life as it was in the garden of eden before us humans tried to control it but nicodemus is still not understanding and i think this is why if i was nicodemus i think this is why He's asking, how is this happening? Because you have to remember, Jesus has not yet died on the cross when him and Nicodemus are having this conversation. Nicodemus is not living in a world where he has seen Jesus die on the cross and come back again. He only knows Jesus as a teacher, not a sacrificial love. And it's then and only then that Jesus utters the words to Nicodemus to explain how this is going to be possible, how he can be saved, how he can be reconciled to God. So let's look at John 3, 16 through 17. I've talked about it, so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus is ushering a new way to be saved, a new way to be made new, a new way to be right with him. And he's telling Nicodemus, and that's good news for Nicodemus, and it's really good news for us today. So what does that actually mean for us today? What does this mean for us, that Jesus is having this conversation, he's saying these words, that he is, he's saying he's the savior of the world, God loved the world. What does this mean for us today? So let's spend the next few minutes unpacking that as we talk about this good news. First thing that we can unpack from this, Jesus loves the world. I know that seems sometimes obvious as I sit here in church But I don't think we can say that enough, to be completely honest. He created it. He designed it to be in relationship with him out of love. And even if it's in its imperfect state, he still chose to send his son to reconcile it to himself. See, I think there's sometimes this thought that Jesus created the world to order us into submission. And that's not actually the case at all. He made it out of love. There's a beautiful little little book that I would highly recommend for those of you who like to read by a man named David Benner. And it's called Surrender to Love. And it basically sets up this whole notion that everything we do, God loves us. And everything we do for him is out of compelling of love. And when he talks about the crucifixion in his book, he talks about the kind of the posture that God took. And I just want to share this today because I think this is a really important thought for us to take ahead as we unpack this good news. And David Benner says... We miss the point when we simply try to do what He, which is Jesus, tells us to do, and we miss the point when we merely try to follow the pattern of his life. Jesus' life points us back to his own source. His life is only understood as the personification of divine love. That makes sense? See, the shift that happens when you read John 3:16 through17 out of a place of God loving the imperfect world, it it shifts the way to perfection. It shifts the list of do's and don'ts and reminds us that we are created for a relationship out of love. So God loves us no matter what. And that's good news for you and I because we're messy, messy people. And now what do I mean by messy people? Now I don't mean the mess that's at my home waiting for me to pick up, okay? Maybe some of you have that too. But I'm gonna ask something now, which I'm curious. I bet the teens will know this. How many of you ever heard of the word Descendants? So this example is either going to work really well or fall horribly flat on its face, OK? But I'm going to give it to you anyway. So Descendants is a teen Disney movie. And you're like, where is this going? So just stick with me, OK? All right, indulge me for two minutes. I'll make it quick, because it's going to help me make my point about messy human beings. So basically, they created this movie series about the villains of Disney characters. So think of like Ariel, Cinderella, Jafar, Kuala DeVille, right? So they've created this imaginary world. And I actually have a slide. There's this uh, beautiful island called Eridon, um, and they have all of the good Disney characters, okay? So think about all of the good Disney characters. And this island is full of goodness. Like, they can do no wrong on here, right? Perfect A's, full of goodness, kind, everything. Then there's another island. And what they've actually done, that's the Lo- Lo- Isle of the Lost, is they have put all the villains on there. There's no resources. There's, there's nothing because they've contained in their minds all of the evil in the world, Okay, well, a good king comes to Aradon, and he says, I don't think it's fair. I actually think that the villain kids, right, the kids of, like, Cruella de Vil and stuff like that should have the chance to prove that they're not only bad, but also good. So he brings a few over, and as you couldn't imagine in any Disney movie, there's songs, there's dancing, there's a little bit of love triangle, right?, but it's actually, I'm sitting here with my pastor's lens when I'm watching with my kids going, oh, this is so fascinating. Because there's this, there's this tension of these villain kids trying to say, I was only taught evil, and that's my identity. But actually, this whole love thing and kindness thing, I can kind of sit on too. And it culminates, I ruined it for Gary. He's watching it with his daughter, Grace. So I t- I'm going to ruin basically the whole epic. Okay, sorry for all the movie. But what happens in the third movie is that because they've started to let over some of these villain kids into the good place, some mischief's starting to happen, right? So there's this one scary moment, and they get together, the leaders, and they're like, how do we keep evil forever out of Eridan? Because we've let some in, but I think it's starting to get too much. And they decide to completely shut off the Isle of the Lost, so no more evil can come in. Well, what happens is out of rage and jealousy and selfishness, one of the good kids gets mad because she's not queen. And she wreaks havoc on this good island. The evilness comes out on her in a way that nobody imagined, and she wreaks havoc on it. And here's what happens at the end. The, The main character, Mal, actually says, once they've put everything back in place, she says, what we have learned is this, that each of us, no matter where we're from or who we were born from, is capable of both good and evil. I have both good and evil in me, and so do you. So they actually ended up removing the barriers and everybody lived happily ever after. We'll see what happens in movie four. But when I was watching this with my kids, I was like, boys, this is so good. And they're like, please don't try to teach us, mommy, okay? But I'm going to use it today as my example, all right? I think those words are true. It took three movies to get there. But you and I, despite our fast best efforts, despite how good we are or how bad we are, Fall short and sin. Now, if you have questions that actually if sin exists, I'd ask you to look around what's happening in our society today. Last week I heard the stat, so it's probably more that we had 93 mass killings in the United States just alone since the beginning of 2023. Loneliness is at um, like huge, uh, huge record highs, partially but due to lots of reasons, but also just because of relational breakdowns. Minnesota, where we live. Has one of the highest, is one of the highest states with the discrepancies between Caucasians and people of color in terms of economic disparity. The poison that that movie talked about from our garden is evident. Now, some of you are like, well, yeah, those are wide-scale problems, but I'm okay, right? I don't have sin in me. Well, let's look closer to home. My husband, Josh, got home from a work trip a few weeks ago. And it was late at night, so I had been, you know, parenting for four days, working. Our puppy suddenly decided to once again wake up at 3 a.m., and there's a lot of snow. How many of you guys are sick of shoveling? Oh, my gosh. I mean, right? So I was like, okay, you know, I'm out, so we get the mail, and that's okay. And I was really excited for him to come home. So he comes in. It's 10.30 at night. I'm washing dishes. And I'm like, hey, Josh, you know, how are you? And he looks at me and goes, don't touch me. I feel terrible. I'm going to bed. And what I would love to tell you is I only said, of course, honey, I love you, you go rest. No, my tiredness, my bitterness, what? You're tired? You, you just sat on a plane for three hours. You are not tired. You need to get over here and help me. And he just looked at me. Okay, you guys can all judge me, it's okay. And I ap- apologized to him profusely in the morning, okay? Profusely in the morning, but my reaction was not one of love. I am in need of a savior when my selfishness My humanness, my anger, my bitterness comes forth, and it gets in the way. And while as hard as I try to make the world a better place to make myself better, I can't make my soul at peace with God. I need a savior for that, and that savior is Jesus. And that's exactly what John 3.16 is telling us. Um, My kids are in swimming lessons, and so one of the things I have learned through the swim program safety they're in is that teaching kids how to swim properly is one of the best ways to avoid them from drowning, And the stat I learned was this, that most people think of drowning as a really loud thing, right? You see people in movies like flashing, but actually the majority of drownings in both children and adults, are they loud or quiet? They're quiet. Nobody actually knows that the child or adult needs to be saved, and the person who's drowning is unable to talk, right? Because they're probably underwater, they don't have the concept to do it, okay? See, our sin can oftentimes be like that. See, sometimes it's loud, and we can say, oh, yeah, that was sin. And other times it's silent, and we don't realize it like Nicodemus did. See, in going back to that conversation in the context of John 3.16, Jesus is pointing out that while Nicodemus thinks he's doing this stuff to be saved, the only way he can actually be at peace with his soul, to be born again, to be saved, is through Jesus, through following Jesus. Because he'll never be able to keep the rules perfectly, just like you and I won't. Nicodemus is in need of a savior just like you and I are. And as I was prepping the sermon this week, I just kind of took a moment and I imagined myself as Nicodemus sitting with Jesus. I'm a skeptical person. I like to ask questions. Okay, if any of you been in a meeting with me, the staff drive me crazy, or the staff don't drive me crazy, I drive them crazy, because I like to ask questions. But I imagine Jesus sitting with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, I think, is trying to figure things out, His whole worldview has suddenly shifted with this arrival of Jesus, right? Things he always had been taught he thought were true were not. As Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting before him. And I think of Jesus, not getting impatient, but just sitting there with him, answering his questions out of love. And I think about Jesus doing that when we wrestle, right? When we have questions, when we say, God, this feels really weird to me to talk about sin. God, this world around me, it feels really weird, and I'm not quite sure how to engage with you in it and enter it. God, you said you're a good God, but really bad things are happening in my life. These two things aren't just computing. See, and I think that's the best case for our need for a Savior, because Jesus is a God that sits with us even when we're wrestling, because he loves us, and because he has grace for us. And that's really good news for us. See, Easter is probably one of my favorite holidays of the year, not just because I work at church, because it's the end to this overarching story of the good news. When I taught kids' church always, when I was a kids' pastor, we called it the big God story, right? So God is working throughout this story, right? But he's had this plan in place and sending the Messiah for, to, to heal the hurt in the world. See, Jesus came to this world when it was imperfect, and even though it's still imperfect, we have him today. To be a partner with him. I love that image. You guys remember on the video of Jesus laying his hand on the man and the snake released from his guard from his heart? So we have that power in Jesus today. When we partner with him, when we love him, we believe him. See, Jesus' love compels us to a higher calling. No matter how much we love each other, and I, you know, I love my children, I love my husband. I am deeply, deeply loved by so many people in this room, and I know that and beyond. It compares nothing. The love that Jesus has for you and I compares nothing to the love that Jesus has for this world. So the simple good news of the gospel is John 3:16. God loves us. He came not to condemn us but to save us. He came to offer us a way to repair the hurt in ourselves and the hurt in the world, that we save from ourselves and from the poison the snake within us, so that we can be with Him forever. He's a really good savior. So now, worship team, if you could come back up, I have a few next steps for you. And if you are collecting the baskets, you can come up, too, so that we're ready to go at the end. If you find yourself in need of a Savior for the first time today, right, maybe some of this stuff is all brand new, or, or maybe you're like, man, I, I just, I don't know, Jesse, like something just kind of, like, tr- like, this is really interesting to me, this idea of a Savior, just write one on your Connect card. Okay, and we'd love to be praying for you and we'd love just to send you a quick follow-up. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, just write one. And as I was talking today and Jesus will be working on your heart or even during worship, if that whole need for a savior needs to be reaffirmed, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time and not out of fear, not out of shame or anything, but you're like, you know what, Jesus? You're right, you are my savior. You are my God. You're more than a nice teacher. You're more than a nice man, like Nicodemus was looking at it. You are the son of God, and I want to only follow you. Just write a two on that connect card, okay? And again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that, but we just love to pray with you, and we'd love to follow up with you. So just take a minute. Everybody take out your connect cards for what you filled up, okay? And uh, we're going to enter into a short time of worship, so you can kind of reflect on the word, reflect on the worship. Ushers, you may start passing out the connect cards, and then we'll come up and end with a time.